1: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus.
2: And I'm April Glazer.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University and New America. We're
2: recording this in the afternoon of Tuesday, December 12th. And on today's show, we're going to talk about the biggest news in tech and big news in general this week, net neutrality with our guest, Tim Wu, professor at Columbia University, who actually coined the term. We'll also talk a little bit about the Bitcoin roller coaster this week, which has been fluctuating wildly. And finally, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs.
1: All right, April. So we're here recording the podcast together for the first time.
2: Yes, yes. We're typically in different cities. It's good to see you here, like in front of the microphone. Uh, but I'm kind of bummed or not kind of bummed, very bummed about the reason why you had to flee north from Santa Barbara, where you're usually stationed. Uh, you were fleeing the, the smoke and the fires, right?
1: Yeah, the, the scene is post-apocalyptic down there. Um, yeah. We were very fortunate. Our place in Goleta, California, just north of Santa Barbara, is totally safe from the flames. Mm. Um, but uh, it was just absolutely shrouded in toxic smoke and ash. And with a little one, uh, we weren't going to stick around. Um, the schools are all closed anyway. Um, it just <laughs> It's just uh, everywhere you go, it smells like a barn- bonfire. So we got out last week. We are now uh, camping up here in the Bay Area, and I'm excited to be with you to record this podcast today.
2: Yeah, no, it's good to be together and just want to send love to so many people that have lost so much in these fires that are still ongoing. And, uh, you know, just lots of, uh, firefighters working so hard and reporters out there covering this. And, uh, and I hope everybody, uh, who's able to is, is, is finding safety. Aside from the fires, (laughs) we've uh, seen other wild things flying around this week, and that is the valuation of Bitcoin, uh, which is something I kind of wanted to talk about today.
1: Yeah, April, tell us about this. And this is is good that you're going to talk about it because I know so little about Bitcoin. I'm so ignorant here. What the heck is going on? Why is everybody suddenly talking about Bitcoin again?
2: Well, they're talking about it because last Thursday it swung up to $19,000 per Bitcoin, which is just wild considering that, you know, uh, I think it was in, in January, um, you know, you could buy uh, a Bitcoin for less than $1,000, right? Uh, and and then by Friday, uh, you know, midday, it dropped down to 16000 again. So just this huge roller coaster is, is going on and, and people are, are watching it and, and stupefied by it right now.
1: Yeah. I'm even seeing tech reporters on Twitter talking about how they had bought it. I don't know if they were doing it like for professional mm-hmm. interest or just because, you know, just for fun, but they had bought like, you know, one or two Bitcoin and all of a sudden yeah. they've got half their annual salary in, in two Bitcoin or whatever, three Bitcoin. Maybe I just disclosed how little, how, how <laughs> sadly little journalists make. But
2: Yeah, that's one point. But, you know, if you bought one in, say, 2013, when this was making buzz, I think Bitcoin started in 2009 and people really started talking about it more about three or four years ago. Ah, uh, you could buy one for about a hundred dollars then. Um, and now, you know, that one hundred dollars investment, it, you know, hit a nineteen thousand dollars valuation that doesn't mean that that person now has nineteen thousand dollars. It means they would have had to sold it for that sell it for that much. Um, but uh, but it was quite an investment. And yes, journalists bought them out of curiosity. A lot of people bought them out of curiosity. A lot of those people who bought them out of curiosity back then have forgotten their passwords and are now freaking out. That's something I wrote about.
1: That was a a great piece. And I could totally totally relate to that. I probably would have lost my password if I had bought one. It reminded me of how like my parents' generation, they bought baseball cards and then put them in shoeboxes and rubber bands and then ended up finding out that they had a $60,000 baseball card that was ruined. But baseball cards are not worth that much anymore, I don't think. (laughs) Will Bitcoin, I mean, is is Bitcoin's value sustainable? What is this all based on? Like, why would I want to pay $18,000 for one virtual coin?
2: You know, it's hard to say if this is going to be like the Beanie Babies for Geeks type of thing now it's like you know (laughs) this 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 stuffed giraffe i swear is going to be worth like seven thousand dollars next year um but uh i will say that one thing to keep in mind with this this bitcoin craze is that there's an immense concentration of ownership here and so you know close to half of all bitcoin out there is owned by about a thousand people right and and like yes it's it's fluctuating wildly but uh, but a lot of the people who stand to profit at least – or at least are, there, aren't, there aren't a lot of people who stand to profit right now. Um, that said, it might be a really good investment. It just I wouldn't buy so high <laughs> right now. One of the reasons that there was a wild upswing though was anticipation around how investors can now bet on changes to Bitcoin's price. And that's because the Chicago Board of Options Exchange became the first kind of traditional exchange to offer Bitcoin futures on Sunday.
1: So is this, but is this all just speculation? I mean, people are buying this just in hopes that it'll go up. That it'll go up because that sounds like the definition of a bubble. If there's not some sort of, you know, obviously Bitcoin has uses, right? Like what criminals can use it for ransoms. I don't know. I'm just going on the headlines. Like. Yeah. What what do what are people actually using it for?
2: Yeah. So for people who are less familiar with Bitcoin, it is an anonymous currency, like you mentioned. Um, It relies on cryptography as a way of circumventing any kind of central power or authority like a bank or a country that would keep a reserve on hand to back the money. Right. Um, And and. The way that works is that when you buy or invest in Bitcoin, when you have Bitcoin, you keep that your digital tokens in a way in kind of a wallet. And then when you want to exchange that money with other Bitcoin holders, um, that transaction is then addressed to someone else's wallet and signed by the person sending it. And then in order for that transaction to be completed, um, it's put on the ledger, which is the the blockchain, right? And uh, and it's through this kind of um, cryptographic signature system and this ledger where there are constantly math problems being done to check the the veracity of the um, of the exchange that they're allowed to circumvent any sort of like central bank um, and so it's a very libertarian idea um, and that's why a lot of uh, alt right folks are doing things like ICOs which is um, kind of instead of an IPO they're they're trying to launch their companies with Bitcoin investment um, but it does seem a bit like a bubble just because it's fluctuating so wildly uh, it's not the type of thing that um, you're certain to make uh, a lot of money on uh, because who knows what will happen that the price could drop, you know, dr- dramatically.
1: So, the, yeah, and the line that I'm hearing is that like, you know, Bitcoin may be a bubble, but cryptocurrency is probably here to stay in some form or another. Does that seem right to you?
2: Yeah, cryptocurrency, or uh, you know, it's definitely, and so is the the blockchain, right? Um, I think I think Bitcoin is probably here to stay in some form or another. You know, people use it, and uh, and uh, particularly in places where there are more restrictive financial markets.
1: All right, and and now, of course, you can also hedge by buying Litecoin. There's Ethereum. There are these these other forms besides Bitcoin itself. But we're going to take a short break right now, and when we come back, we'll have our interview on net neutrality with Tim Wu.
2: Our guest today is Tim Wu. He's a law professor at Columbia, where he focuses on antitrust, copyright, and the media. He's written numerous books and articles, including The Master Switch in 2010 and his most recent book, The Attention Merchants, published in 2016. Tim is also a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, and he's credited for coining the term net neutrality. Welcome to If Then, Tim.
3: Sure, a pleasure. I I feel like I need to add to that, that I spent years uh, as a contributor for Slate. (laughs)
0: Oh, yes. In fact, that's where I
3: did my first – no, no problem. I did my first uh, writing. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick uh, got me into the popular writing business. So I have a huge debt of gratitude to Slate.
2: I also was first published in Slate years ago, and now it's good to be back. Mm -hmm. So um, it's good they they give people a chance here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but I wanted to uh, I wanted to start out with asking you, you know, we're expecting uh, the FCC to vote on Thursday, uh, pro- probably in favor of Pi's proposal that would rescind the net neutrality rules from 2015 that were passed that would essentially allow Internet providers to block or throttle or slow down or charge, you know, access to websites uh, however they please, as long as they disclose it first. Uh, is there any kind of lever of change to poll to stop this? I mean, maybe not this week, but even before it shows up, you know, officially on the books. What can people do, if anything?
3: Yeah, well, the lever to pull would have been the one for uh, Hillary Clinton.
2: <laughs> I'll <would> just say <laughs> that
3: this is uh, this is kind of um, collateral damage from the, from the Trump uh, mm-hmm. election. I mean, I don't think anyone was – except for maybe people like me were thinking about net neutrality when – The election was going down, but uh, this is uh, coming from that. So a lot of this has to do with the presidential election. You know, what can people do? I think that – I always think when something really big is happening, and this is a really big deal, and I'll I'll talk about why. You know, it is worth protesting, even if it's not necessarily going to change the FCC's mind. uh, It certainly gets the attention of Congress and elected branches to see how much people care about these kind of things or not. Uh, you know, so the absence of complaint, everyone's like, well, nobody really cared anyway. So that, that's a big uh, – that, that's what it is. So making noise in any fashion I think is important. I think people in Washington are afraid of, of you know, the geek army sort of ignited people. or not only geeks, like just people getting really fired up about tech issues. And they don't know how that goes. Yeah, I'm
2: going to say it's not just geeks. It's millions of ev- – all, all kinds of people. Yeah, yeah. it is
3: millions. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. I'm
2: wondering if you could kind of uh, just to, to walk back a second for people who don't quite understand the gravity of this, something that, that you say you are one of the few people that were thinking about this in the run up to the election, Um, kind of help us understand why this is just such an important issue.
3: Okay. So it's really important what the FCC is doing because they are effectively removing all federal oversight over broadband companies uh, who have – come to become you know, one of the most important utilities of our time. I mean it's a little bit as if they'd gotten rid of any pricing or uh, conduct controls over the electric company. <laughs> so suddenly they, they say, okay, they charge you $500 for electricity. Well, that's – what are you going to do? Go without electricity. No, they, they, they're eliminating all the rules uh, of conduct. They've already – you know, there's no pricing rules already, but they've got any other conduct rules over – the big phone and, and cable companies. And so they could kind of, if they wanted to, do anything. We could talk later about whether they would. But, you know, they could block Slate if they wanted. They could block certain Comcasts, they, uh, podcasts. They could slow things down. Um, they could block sites that are critical of them. Uh, you know, it's kind of sky's the limit. Um, and I think that's a, a big deal.
2: We And, you know, we saw uh, in 2005 there's the Canadian case of, of TELUS where they actually blocked uh, access to a, a, a union website that was organizing a strike against the company,
3: right? Yeah. I mean it's a favorite tool of totalitarian governments around the world. There's been a lot of blocking uh, in the United States. You know, some of it's subtle. There was blocking of voice over IP in mm-hmm. 2004 or 5. Uh, there was a blocking of the um, – Skype on the iPhone, blocking Google Wallet, obviously Netflix throttling years ago. So it has Mm -hmm. been this in the United States as well.
1: So before we say our sad goodbyes to net neutrality, I wanted to bring up one of the few serious defenses of Pi that I've come across. Uh, It was from the technology and media and business analyst Ben Thompson in his Stratechery newsletter. He actually started out by citing a tweet from you, Tim. Uh, It was the one where you you referenced the the chart that went around showing what the internet is like in Portugal without net neutrality, it showed that you sign up for this basic package and then you have to pay you know five dollars to add on Google and Yahoo and Bing and another ten dollars to add on Pandora and lastfm and Rhapsody. Um, now, this was just a mock-up. This isn't. This wasn't how the plan actually works. There, but what Thompson was saying was, look, the the attacks on net neutrality presuppose that there will be all these abuses where you're getting nickel and dimed by the ISPs for every different service you use. But in fact, Thompson says there's no evidence that that will be the case. Uh, and further, he says we should we should worry about regulating, uh, you know, passing heavy-handed regulations against potential future harm because you don't know exactly what the future harms will be, but you also don't know what the costs of regulation will be. He argued that we should be using more of a light touch approach um, and, and, you know, sort of wait and see what the abuses are before we are classifying ISPs uh, uh, under Title II. Um, What's your response to to that general line of argument?
3: So I, I don't think there's much in the consumer... In these kind of multifaceted pricing programs, um, I think it borrows heavily from the airline playbook, which is to say that you do a lot to make you know the basic service a lot worse. You don't necessarily reduce the pricing, but then you give other create other tiers above it to try and you know coax money out of people who are not wanting uh, the degraded service. And I think there's a, been a big effort, even within even with net neutrality to try, you know, I mean, it all comes down to trying to get more money out of, yeah, out of the consumer. <laughs> but, you know, to try to make basic service not good and to make the other services seem like they're better. And I think that accelerates that and uh, ends up with a bigger bill for what could have been and has been basically the same thing. So that, that's one thing I think is very anti-consumer about it. It's a, whole, it's a very popular business model, which is not to necessarily improve the product, so much as to sort of differentiate it and create categories that people don't want to be in. Um, As for this, you know, being a solution, I think I sort of described why I think that's not true. I mean, uh, the uh, cable and phone companies have skin in this game. They uh, both have uh, voice services and and other services. And they're they're already in it, and particularly in the TV world. I mean, think of a company like Comcast owning all of NBC's holdings. AT and T is trying to get a hold of all of Time Warner's holdings, so they have—they're very, uh, you know, they have strong reasons to want to have some parties win or some parties lose. So I—I I, I don't really think they have straightforward interest in new, neutrality. So yeah, I do think it's going to be bad for the consumer. I don't think it'll be the day after the rules announced you'll see anything shocking, but over the long run, I, I really expect a. Uh, yeah, and increase the amount we pay for internet access. Can I make another point? I don't want to sure. just go on in these long monologues. Like te- you know, here it is, net neutrality guy going on and on. But, <laughs> you know, fine. and it's not only just the consumer side. And maybe you're going to ask about this earlier, but um, you know, what about the challengers to Facebook? I mean, what does that look like? Right. It just got. Let's just say it, it's about to get a lot harder to take on Facebook, Google, even Netflix. Any of these companies, it's gotten way harder because they're the ones with the money. So I think, you know, we've just uh, entered kind of an ice age in a weird way of uh, the media and internet markets, which we always assumed, okay, when's the next new thing? Who's coming? Well, the next new thing, I guess, is Snap and how how are they doing?
2: Right, right. No, and, and there is a question about, you know, if, are we fighting to defend uh, an internet that uh, is already consolidated, you know, and, and, Uh, But it seems that if, you know, with net neutrality or without net neutrality, rather, it's just going to further entrench the power of these incumbents, largely because they're going to get to set the price for what priority access looks like. And it probably will be out of bounds for most other people.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's always been the secret. Now, Facebook, Google, all these companies, to their credit, have said, you know, net neutrality is how we were born. It's most important to us. But everyone also knows that it's, you know, to some degree to their advantage to climb up the ladder and pull it up after them. So they have uh, mixed motives in this, in this area, though their consumers you know, want them to be pro and actually their employees are pretty pro mm-hmm. net neutrality. So I don't think they would ever say like, ah, this isn't our interest. We'll just do this and lock out our competitors. It's against their philosophy, but not their business interests.
2: Yeah, they stand to gain from this.
1: Yeah, so that ties into to another uh, sort of a related topic that I wanted to ask you about. Um, obviously, everybody's talking to you about net neutrality right now because of what's going on this week, but you're also very focused these days on um, on antitrust issues, and that's something we've talked a lot about on the show as well. Yeah. Um, one of the arguments in that aforementioned um, uh, commentary by Ben Thompson that I that I asked you about was that basically we should be using a a you know this phrase the light touch we should be using a light touch when it comes to regulation of ISPs and that draws on a a tradition. Uh, of the F- FCC trying to use a light touch when it comes to regulating, um, all, I mean, applying scrutiny to all kinds of mergers, I guess, but also to regulating the internet in particular, where the idea is that the landscape is always shifting. You know, today's um, uh, you know, today's Facebook could be tomorrow's MySpace, and so better to stay out of it and not try to anticipate what the future harm will be and, and preemptively regulate that. Um, you know, there, obviously, this sort of light tuff- touch approach, you can make the argument that it's given us a lot. I mean, they, there's been a ton of Innovation in the internet um, with this sort of free for all. On the other hand, I think we're starting to see we're start, society is starting to grapple with some of the downsides of uh, the the sheer size and power of these companies like Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw you testifying in a in a congressional briefing uh, recently about these issues. Um, you know, how do you think about how do you think about that uh, about the size of these companies and, and what needs to be done now? I think you have a forthcoming book about this topic too, right?
3: I do. That's right. Thanks for letting me mention that. Uh, working title, at least for now, The Curse of Bigness Revisited. I've sort of picked up on Louis Brandeis' uh, 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 legacy and his uh, vision of what the American economy should be like. And, you know, he, he makes a point. I think it's hard to contest that small companies grow. When the economy gets too big and and concentrated, the uh, industries stagnate. And, uh, you know, they need the sort of bursts of of new activity to to get going. So yes, I'm I'm obsessed with uh, antitrust. A uh, believer in occasional big breakups to uh, leaving the uh, leave in what otherwise can become very solidified. Uh, and I think all that's having a big comeback. You know, as for the argument, can I just make one thing about that light touch? Net neutrality was the light touch. Yes, that's what's crazy about it. <laughs> you know, it it's like moving a goalpost. Yeah. it was already the light touch. In fact, I think the reason Michael Powell, sorry, the you know Republican FCC chairman who put in place net neutrality rules, really, uh, he was like, well, this is a light touch. You know, it's not as intense. So, I, I, you know, I think that uh, there was a little moving the shells there.
2: One thing that everyone's sure about is that Pi's net neutrality repeal is going to court. Um, what exactly will be challenged there?
3: So uh, one of the problems with Pi, I think Pi in some ways was forced into doing an even more radical move than I think he originally wanted to. He got rid of completely of the the, blo- the, rule, mm-hmm. the the law against blocking and throttling. Mm-hmm. I think he actually originally wasn't going to go there. He went all the way because he has even more conservative people on, on the FCC right now. And um, so the courts are going to say, OK, well, uh, what changed? And so he's going to say, well, you know, we need more investment mm-hmm. and you know, Obama did this uh, big rule and maybe we need to change. But uh, I think he's going to have trouble saying there's something, you know, really – fundamentally different about the incentives of the cable companies, you know, when they first put the net neutrality rules in place in o in four and o five, mm-hmm. to lead to such a big change. Yeah, is it gonna... So I think they're in trouble in the courts. And the the technical phrase is uh, the action will, I think, be viewed as either arbitrary or capricious.
2: Yes, that's what I'm hearing a lot. Uh, right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim.
3: Oh, sure. It's been a pleasure. I, and, you know, I, I love Slate and... Uh, I feel very, uh, uh, yeah, I, I love it. So thanks for having me on.
1: All right, one more quick break, and then don't close my tabs, some of our favorite things we've seen online this week.
0: Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI.
2: So it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what couldn't you close this week?
1: My tab this week was a tweet from Netflix. And I'll read you the text of the tweet. To the 53 people who've watched A Christmas Prince every day for the past 18 days, who hurt you? This was a tweet that Netflix sent a couple days ago. The social media person for Netflix probably felt very proud of themselves. It got a lot of engagement. Good job, Netflix! Right. Well, the story doesn't end there. Immediately, people started asking, "Why does Netflix have this information? And does it doesn't know who these 53 people are? And isn't that sort of creepy that it is tracking these kinds of things and then calling people out for it and making fun of their viewing habits on social media?" Uh, it, it became uh, so, so. The backlash has now made this tweet. Uh, sort of blow up in Netflix's face. I actually don't find it that creepy. I don't think it's ba- that bad. They made a joke. Of course, these companies have this kind of information on us. It doesn't mean that they're sitting there reading what you, April Glazer, or 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 I, Will Remus, is watching on any given night. But of course, it did, you know, it it, it did call attention to the fact that, that they do track this stuff. April, what did you make of it?
2: I guess the thing that kind of bugged me out is the question of like, you know, how many employees are accessing people's viewing habits, right? Or like, what is the punishment for accessing people's viewing habits? I mean, we had, there's such a robust history in the U.S. of when there is massive data collection at an institution of people, for instance, uh, looking for data on uh, a ex-lover, right? Or on somebody that they want to ha- surveil or have information on. Uh, I just found it unsettling and unnecessary. And it's like, I know they know all this stuff, but... Do they need to like publicly shame customers or, you know, it, it brought it uh, brought up a lot of questions that I think they would probably rather not answer.
1: Yeah. Th- all right. That's a great point. I think you've mostly persuaded me. It, it is sort of reminiscent of when uh, a reporter was interviewing Uber and found out they have this thing called God mode where yeah. they can see where everybody is at any given time. It's just it is it is scary to think that they have this in- kind of information. And of course, there is the potential for abuse. So that's a fair point. Uh, April, what what is your tab this week?
2: I actually am tabless this week, and that's because our producer, the great Max Jacobs, uh, has something that he wanted to share, and that I, I also am concerned about.
0: Hey, well, hey, April,
1: Max, I'm I'm so excited Yay! to hear your tab. Well, welcome <laughs> onto the onto the show, which you are the the uh, the mind behind in a lot of ways. What could you not close this week?
0: So my tab is in regards to Patreon. Patreon, not positive on how you say it exactly. But it is a crowdfunding platform, so similar to GoFundMe and Kickstarter, Mm -hmm. except this one tends to focus more on recurring giving. So rather than you're giving $10 for a band to make an album, maybe you give $5 a month for that band because you think they're awesome.
2: Like you're supporting an artist over the long term. Yes,
0: exactly, exactly. Uh, So it's really popular. A lot of creators, artists, musicians use it. They sustain themselves on it, frankly. But... December 18th, at the end of this week, the company is proposing some changes. So right now, with the fee structure, when you pay a creator, they have to pay a percentage of that back to Patreon. Right now, it's something like 7 to 15%. They are changing this. uh, They're lowering it to 5%. So that's a win initially, except they're now charging the patron, the patron, whoever's giving, 2.9%. And a fee of $0.35. So this is a win for anyone who's giving really large donations. But if you're giving a lot of small donations, this becomes sort of a problem. So essentially, the first tab that I had was an article from TechCrunch, which basically just summed up this story. Mm -hmm. Then I went into this sort of tab rabbit hole of all these creators on Twitter who are very angry about this. So I'll read you one tweet that I thought summed it up pretty well. This is from at TPR Jones. Pledging $100 to one creator will now cost $103.25, which is reasonable. Pledging $1 each to 100 creators will now cost $138, which is not reasonable. So the concern, I think, is that you see this a lot of times. People are actually encouraging $1 contributions, like how many $1 backers can we get, but already some of these creators are saying we're seeing people say they have to scale back because if it's going to cost them, you know, $27, 28 to fund 20 projects, they're just going to fund less projects.
2: Is there a huge ecosystem of people that really depend on Patreon as their primary source of income as independent artists?
0: It does seem like there's a lot of people that do this and a lot of people that have embraced specifically this company as a good way to do this rather than just say, hey, can you just send me money every month? Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like people really want to have something that looks legitimate for them to send their money to. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of concern about this. Um, So it's sad to me, you know, it's a week before Christmas. All of a sudden people might see their income drop dramatically. So I'm encouraging anyone, you know, who supports cool creators out there, get in contact with them, figure out what's a good way you can still support them through their website, through PayPal, you know, whatever is secure and safe.
2: Yeah, I, we're always having kind of to dance around the new rules that companies put up. And, and this seems like a kind of an inopportune timing, because this is a time when people really want to give.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, because Patreon is kind of has kind of become known as this alternative to the whole Mess of online capitalism uh, <laughs> yes. that, that that big corporations have created, and now of course this calls attention to the fact that Patreon has its own has its own interests and and has to make money, etc. Max, thank you so much for sharing that tab with us. I want to have you on again in the future if you're game for it. We'll
0: see. We'll see.
2: Thank you, Max.
1: All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at IfThen at slate.com.
2: And you can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Tim Wu, for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at Super Wooster.
1: We also have a favor to ask of our listeners. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you listen and leave us a review. This does a lot for us, helping to get the word out about the show and we really sincerely deeply appreciate it.
2: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley.
1: Our banging theme music is provided by Doug Chase. We will see you next Wednesday.
2: Bye, y'all.